Welcome to Boundaries Part 4, Boundaries in Marriage. And even if you're not married, it will apply because it translates. Some of you have been married or some of you in the future will be married. You'll see there are principles that apply everywhere. Let me just pray before we start. Father God, Holy Spirit, Father, I pray that you would speak through me today, Father God. Lord, I pray that you would just settle, settle me, Father God. Lord Jesus, uh, this is such an important topic, God. Lord Jesus, marriages are so sacred and so important and so powerful. Father, I pray that you would allow me to speak truth with power and love, and I pray, God, that it would hit its mark. And I pray that it will bring healing and health to marriage relationships, Lord God, to all who hear. Bless them. Lord God, help them to be able to receive what you have for them. And I pray, God, that you would speak through me in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, wrestling through the boundary issues has been, it's so complicated um, because you don't want to be in either ditch. And nothing is more complicated than a marriage. Nothing is more important. Nothing is more powerful. Nothing is more sacred. God says, if I've brought two together, you better not split them up. He has a lot to say about marriage. And so I, I literally just studied this and prayed over this really with fear and trembling. I mean, I just, I don't want anybody to go into any ditches. You know, I just pray that the Holy Spirit anoints me with his power to help give guidance. So I whittled it down to some some kind of basic principles. And I really did a lot of basic principles based on things that I've observed through a lot of counseling and just patterns I've seen. It's so important that every time we talk about boundary, we understand that boundaries are to promote love. The whole purpose of boundary is to promote love. It is not to build barriers. It is not to build walls. You know, I think so many, so many times when you think of a boundary, you think of a barrier, a wall, and you, we don't build barriers and walls in marriages. That's very unhealthy. So, you know, I think people struggle. Well, how do I have a boundary if that doesn't mean a barrier or a wall? And, you know, I was thinking through it and praying through it. When we don't have healthy boundaries, that's when we have to have walls. Unhealthy boundaries require us to build walls. And I was asking God, like, what's a good analogy? And he reminded me when I went to Guatemala, it is kind of a free-for-all over there. And because there aren't well-established boundaries, every single person has to have walls that are as tall as your roof and then barbed wire around it. And you have to have guard dogs inside your courtyard. You usually have to have two or three. They're not to be pets. They're there for your protection because there aren't well-established boundaries. When I went to India, you, let, you take your life in your hands every time you drive anywhere because there are not well-established boundaries on the road. And so it's dangerous. And when things are dangerous, that's when we build walls. We wall ourselves in. When things feel safe, we don't need the walls. When you don't have healthy boundaries, you don't feel safe, so you build walls. So really, I just want to establish that the point of the healthy boundaries in a marriage isn't to build walls, but so you can tear the walls down and feel safe. That is the point of the boundary. So a definition of boundaries is the invisible line where I end as a person and someone else begins. Understanding where my responsibility ends and someone else's starts. Where my authority ends and someone else's starts. Okay, so this could be confusing in marriage. That's much more clear when it comes to friendships, relationships, children, all the other things we talked about. In marriage, God says we're one. 
So this could be very confusing. You could say, oh, well, I'm one with this person. So there's not a place where I end and he begins or she begins. We have a lot of male listeners, so I have to always remember to include them. The point is God has very well established areas for men and women in marriage. Very, very well established. They're definitely two different people. There are boundaries that God sets up in marriage. The man is the protector. The woman is the nourisher. And, and obviously, it doesn't mean that, you know, we don't nurture a man doesn't nurture his children or a woman doesn't protect her children. So there's crossover. But the point is there are established roles. Even though we are one with this person, we have designated healthy areas that makes things work and run. And so when we get so confused that we don't know where when we end and they begin and they end and we begin, it gets really messed up. And I'm going to talk about some of these things because if you have reoccurring boundary problems, you will have established patterns of breakdown in your relationship. I want to first say as women, we can have a problem with not voicing our boundaries. You know, they're invisible lines. Remember I said they're invisible lines. It is our job to voice and a a man's job to voice. It's a couple's job to voice where the boundaries need to be and work it out. You know, so many people are like, well, they should just know. They should just understand. They should just know. No, the only boundaries that people should just know are the ones that are established by law and the ones that are established by the Bible, like thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal. Those are boundaries, right? Those are established by God. Those everybody knows. But inside a relationship, there are boundaries that have to be established, that have to be spoken because they are invisible and you have to speak them and you have to work them out. And so it's our responsibility to speak up and work them out. We set boundaries in a really straightforward, gentle way. And it's really important that we do it in a gentle but very direct and straightforward way. It is not fair to somebody else. If you are not straightforward with your boundaries, it's your fault, not theirs. 100% your fault, not theirs. It's your job to set your own boundaries. It's your job to establish them. It's your job to say it. Because I work with people on this so much, what I often see is when somebody hasn't been able to set a boundary, it's so unnerving for them and they're so freaked out by it that they come in very harsh because, you know, it's, it's hard for them to do it. So they come in like, this is how it's going to be and blah, 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 blah. That is not a godly way to set a boundary. A boundary is done with respect and gentleness, but it's firm. Reoccurring boundary problems in marriage relationships. And these are general. And it's interesting, as I was really like hashing through them, I I set up four general um, patterns. And really, you may see yourself in all of them. I think they are very helpful. So we're going to start with the enabler because the enabler is the person who has the most difficult time with boundaries. It's so painful for them to set a boundary. They they will respect everybody's boundaries, but it's very hard for them to set their own. Enablers are conflict avoiders. You know, if conflict scares you, there's a good chance you're an enabler. There are people who can't say no. They can't set boundaries. They feel guilty. That's a big one. Feel so guilty about setting a boundary. Don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. One of the problems with enablers is a lot of times they'll talk to everybody else about it, but not that person. And that's a really bad trait. They will talk themselves out of boundaries. They'll have excuses that really aren't Christian, but they think, 
I'm supposed to be the good Christian. And that gets them out of having to deal with the conflict. They just usually have a list of reasons why they just can't set that boundary. And in a marriage, this becomes so unhealthy. An enabler, especially in a marriage, really likes to see themselves as the victim. And they're very convinced that they're the victim. An enabler feels like they are being taken advantage of. They are the victim. They are married to the big bad wolf, you know, um, really. And they feel that way. They may love him, but they really feel like he takes advantage of them and he kind of eats them alive. They are lifelong victims to themselves, to their relationships. There is a big business term, and it's called locus of control. And any of you who took business classes, I was a business major in college, um, you would have heard the term locus of control. This is really important. We need to do a little business class for the enablers. For the enabler, an enabler will not do well in business if they're going to tra- – now, sometimes enablers can do it in business but not in their own personal life. But what locus of control means, it means that you see yourself as a participant in the situation that's happening. So, for example, they teach you in business classes when you're interviewing someone. They say, tell me about a problem that you had at your last job. And they tell you the problem. And then they, they say, well, where, what was your, where do you see yourself in that? Now, if the person sees themselves as the victim, they say, run from that employee. They say, don't hire. And you would think that they're looking for someone who's like, oh, I was the victim. I was perfect. I was blameless. I was blah, blah, blah. And, of course, there are times when we are, right? So this isn't, again, a blanket statement. But they want to see someone who says, you know what? I learned this from that. I figure I can do this better next time. I could, I could take authority over this this way because they're not victims of their life. They are participants in every situation. And guess what? God wants us to say he's given us these lives. He's our boss, right? He doesn't want to look down and us be like, we're victims of our lives. You know, he wants to be like, okay, what are you going to do about this? An enabler has to look at things and be like, how am I the locus of control in this situation? When we see ourselves as a locus of control, we no longer operate as a victim. We are no longer outside our lives looking into our marriage. We have the power in our lives. We are not a victim of our marriage. And, of course, there are extreme situations. I decided not to focus on the extreme situations. I'm not talking about extremely abusive situations where you just need to leave and get out. Um, obviously, there are those. That's not the focus of this talk today. I'm talking about normal, fairly normal, dysfunctional marriages, right? Just the dysfunction in, in normal marriage. So that's the enabler, okay? Now, another category is the boundary violator. The boundary violator cannot hear no. You know, the enabler can't say no, and the boundary violator cannot hear no. They're just going to do what they're going to do. They will not pick up on other people's cues. They ignore people's words or feelings. You know, they really can be kind of bullies. And a lot of times, so a lot of times we don't see ourselves, so a lot of times they don't even know they're being a bully. A lot of times they're not even, you know, it's not like they're mean, bad people. But we have natural bents and we have natural weaknesses. And an enabler doesn't honestly see that they're just refusing to, to make a stand. They see themselves as a victim. And the, and the boundary violator doesn't really see themselves as being a bully. They just think that they're doing what they're doing and unaware of anybody else in some ways. And really, with that person, what's important to them, that's what's important to them. What's important to you, not as important to them. 
What's really important to them is what's important to them. You see, uh, when, I, when I've worked with this personality, you see a lot of addicts in this personality. You see a lot of addiction with this personality. So there's addiction of, you know, all types of substance and blah, 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 blah in this personality category. But there, it doesn't have to be like a substance or it can be a control freak, a really controlling person, a controller. I almost called this person a controller. Like I almost called the enabler a conflict avoider. A controller will find a way to manipulate other people's boundaries to get what they want. And they will find a way to cross those boundaries. And a lot of times people have a hard time identifying this person because they will, they will operate out of pity or guilt. A lot of times that's their first path at how they're going to manipulate the boundaries. Pity, guilt. And then when that doesn't work, they can get really, really angry. And, and that's when, when pity and guilt don't work, then a lot of times they move into anger. They can move into abuse. You know, it can go into this whole other darker place. So you've got the enabler who can't say no. You've got the boundary violator who can't hear no. And I like to make a little joke, which is if a boundary manipulator and an enabler meet in a bar, what happens? They get married. They get married. These two personalities find each other like magnets. Opposites attract. And so they find each other. So, so you have a lot of dysfunction in marriages because these two personalities often attract. So I have four categories, so those are two. I'm going to go through them two at a time. It doesn't mean there's not crossover between. It's just the way I figured out how to organize this. I, you know, I, I was saying how, you know, this can lead to anger, that there, this can be the, the violator, the boundary violator can become very angry when that person doesn't get their way. Not always. And I'm going to deal with the second part of not always that person after this. But I want to talk about the one who gets angry. Because that one is a pretty, that one's a pretty severe dysfunction. And I've seen it run really deep. The problem is the conflict avoider or the enabler is so afraid of someone else's anger that that anger has absolute, they're just afraid to face it. So it gives that anger power. The violator quickly figures out that the enabler or the conflict avoider is really afraid of that anger. And so they figure out really quickly. And listen, this isn't somebody sitting down scheming this. This is just our natural nature, right? This person, they're just trying to do what they're trying to do. And they don't want anybody in the way. And so they figure out how to make that happen, to get what they want. So they, they figure out pretty quickly that a little bit of anger will get this person to back right down. And now the person with the anger problem is controlling everything because the enabler is afraid of that anger, really afraid of that anger. Your first scripture you have is Proverbs 29:25. Fearing people is a dangerous trap, but trusting the Lord means safety. I got news for you. If you're afraid of their anger, you're afraid of that person, the person you love, your spouse, and this works both ways, by the way. I have seen just as many women operate this way as men. And so this is not like a man thing and a woman thing. But if you're afraid of that person's anger, you have now fallen into a trap because you're afraid of a, of a you, you fear a person. But trusting the Lord means safety. You know, that, that boundary violator is getting positive reinforcement by the enabler or the conflict avoider because they always get what they want when they blow up. 
And so that person is going to be like, this is a great way to do things. When I see marriages fall apart like this, the violator is like, what? I thought everything was fine. I was perfectly happy. And the enabler is like, are you kidding? You're yelling and screaming and blah, blah, blah. And they're just like, well, you're fine. Could you just shrivel right back down? So they're, they're like even confused a lot of times. Like, well, I didn't think anything was wrong. And they're like, what are you kidding me? I'm miserable. And they're like, I didn't even know. Like, blink, blink, blink. Like, you're in the headlights because, because you're not communicating usually. And the enabler is scared to communicate because they're afraid that they'll get mad. You know, so this whole big circular. And you've now created a monster because they feel entitled to their way all the time. And the enabler feels like the victim, the boundary that violators, they feel entitled. So you get this horrible circle. I wanted to talk about what is anger. Because I was just sitting there thinking about the power of anger in relationships. And I thought, anger, it's just simply a feeling inside another person. That's all it is. Anger is just a feeling inside somebody else. Why do we allow somebody else's feelings to scare us half to death, to control us, and to create this horrible fear inside of us? Why do we let them? It's just a feeling. It really is. It's just a feeling. It's just their feelings. Why do their feelings evoke so much power over us? Proverbs twenty two twenty nine says, an angry person starts fight. Yep. A hot-tempered person commits all kinds of sin. So when you let an angry person have power over you, you have now allowed sin control over you. You've allowed sin, somebody's sinfulness, really it's evil. I mean, anger is evil when it's full-blown. The Bible says when anger is full-blown, it leads to murder. You know, Jesus said that. So anger is a very serious sin. So you are now bowing because you are afraid of a person and you're afraid of their feelings, you are now bowing to somebody else's evil. You are now letting an out-of-control person control you. And, and why do we pass that off? But we do, right? It's, it's freakish. And I can tell you, being in ministry, you have to be willing to take the hits from other people. You have to be willing to receive anger from other people. You can't be somebody who's afraid of anger. If you're afraid of anger, you can't be in ministry. I learned that so early on. I'm just like, okay, I'm, I, I, I will be useless for God if I'm afraid of, what, of people being angry at me. Because there's no minister on the face of the earth, especially Jesus. It's like the more godly you are, the more people will be angry with you. So you really can't be afraid to just be really direct. Say the truth straightforward and let them be angry or not. And if, listen, if they're angry because you did something wrong, I'm not perfect. I'm, I have no problem saying I'm sorry. But if they're angry because I didn't do something wrong, not my problem. I'm not going to bow to it. I'm not going to be afraid of it. I'm not going to be intimidated about it. And I'm not going to be shut up by it. These are uh, dynamics in marriage. Now, a little tiny disclaimer. I was once counseling, this was quite a few years ago, but I was counseling a newlywed um, couple and the the wife, the brand new wife, wanted and just insisted that I tell the new husband that all anger is sin. That if he ever felt angry, he was sinning against her. And I'm like, honey, I know you want me to back you on this. I cannot. That's not what the Bible says. I gave the scripture to you in Ephesians 4:26. It says, "Be angry and sin not, or do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath." There is a righteous anger. We know Jesus showed righteous anger. He knocked over carts he, in the temple. He pulled out a whip. He, you know, he was angry, and he was righteous, and he was right to be angry. There's a righteous anger. There, it's not even a sin to be angry. The sin is how we handle the anger. 
It's not a sin to feel anger. Everybody feels anger. God feels anger. Look up scriptures on God's anger. There's a lot of them. It's how we handle the anger. So your marriage is not screwed up and messed up if, there's, if he feels angry or you feel angry. It's how you handle the anger. What do you do with the anger? Do you use it to control the other person? Does the other person use it to control you? If it's used as a control mechanism, it's sin. You know, if it's used to put fear in somebody, if it's used as controlling factor, it's sin. And if you have a partner doing it to you, you can't be an enabler. You can't capitulate it. Uh, You know, I was just thinking, actually, the enablers need to learn how to have a little righteous anger. The enablers need to learn how to have a little fire in their belly and make a little stand. You know, so anger's not wrong, just giving in to explosions of angers and cruelty and et cetera, et cetera. But God wants us to be angry at sin. He wants us to make a stand against it. So, you know, there is a purpose and a time for anger, but it's just how we deal with it. So we have to learn how to stay separate from other people's anger. Let their anger belong to them. It's not yours. Their anger belongs to them. That's your boundary. Their anger is their anger. It doesn't belong to you. It's not my anger. It's your anger. That's a boundary. That's a healthy boundary. And you can't be manipulated when you're like, I hate that you're angry. That's your anger. You know, and of course, we have to be people who are examine ourselves, especially before the Lord, because we always seem very lily white and innocent to ourselves. But, you know, am I a participant? Is there something I need to change? Is there something I need to do? But if not then that has to belong to them, not you. They have to learn how to deal with their own anger, and you have to learn how to keep that anger from controlling you. So here we go. We were saying boundaries are an invisible line. Here's the invisible line. They have to learn how to deal with their out-of-control feelings uh, if, and keep them under control, and you have to learn how to not let their feelings control you. That's a healthy boundary in a marriage. That's what that looks like. The angry person is going to have to learn how to be healthy and respectful with those feelings. But you have to learn how to not let them control you so that they can learn that. I mean, you see how it all plays together. Okay, the enabler is going to have to learn that if they capitulate to that anger, they will be doing it for the rest of their lives. You want to give in to that? Sin never stays the same size. The Bible tells us it grows and grows and grows and grows. So if you start giving in to that sin, they're not going to all of a sudden be like, oh, I'm just going to stop being angry. I mean, unless they have like the Apostle Paul, you know, experience on the road to Damascus and God strikes them. But outside of a very powerful experience with God, they're not going to just naturally be like, I'm just going to stop being angry. You know, so if you want to give in to that, you're going to be giving into it for as long as you're in this relationship. That's how that works. So uh, the enabler um, will become in bondage to a very unhealthy, ungodly emotion of somebody else's. They have given away control of themselves to someone who has completely out of control emotions and feelings. Enabler, you have to make a decision. Do I want to let them control me? It's your decision. It's your life because you are the locus of control of your own life. You are not the victim here. You make a decision. Are you going to give your control away to that angry person? Your choice. God lets you make it. God has given you this life. You get to be the deciding factor on whether or not you're going to give that control away to that person's emotions, to that person's feelings. Their feelings get to control you if you choose to bow to it. It's your decision. When we don't have boundaries, we actually allow another person's anger to be the cue to us to do something. Their anger is like, okay, 
I have a cue. These are my choices, right? So it cues us to change something. And so we have different options. We can seek their approval by capitulating. So you want their approval? You want them to approve of you again? Then you're going to need to bow down to that. Psalm 118.8, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. If you capitulate to that person, you are giving into something that is unholy and ungodly, and you're really putting your trust in man instead of God. Or we get angry back at them ourselves. I can tell you, I will respond anger with anger. So I run at it. I don't shrink at it. I run at it. So I'm like, you're going to be angry at me. I will up you times 10 because I'm Irish and I have a temper that is really ugly. And Psalm 37, 8 is the scripture to that. It says, stop being angry. Turn from your rage. Do not lose your temper. It only leads to harm. That's where boundaries come in. And that's what I'm trying to teach us. There is great power in remaining calm, being very clear on what is right and wrong, what is, the, what is the line, and being steady and continuing to go in the direction you know God has called you into. I can't even believe the power in that. Proverbs 15:1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger, which I was just saying. A soft answer, that doesn't mean you don't answer. That doesn't mean you bow down. It means you state your pace. So, for example, let's say you've got a partner who's lost their mind. We'll just say he because I've got a bunch of women. But let me tell you, I have been just as equally this partner as my husband. So I have lost it. I really am more at fault at giving in to my temper than my husband. He, he controls it. I think he's afraid if he ever loses it that, you know, I don't know, we'll have broken windows or something. So he really doesn't give in to that. I give in to it more than he does. But I'm just going to use he. So let's just say you have an, uh, somebody who's losing it and they're screaming and they're yelling and they're cursing and they're going crazy, you know, and I'm sure the only person, I'm sure I'm the only person who's ever lost their temper like that here. But, you know, what, what do you do? A lot of women do face this. What do you do? Very calmly. Go back to our very beginning boundaries. What is a boundary? A boundary is what God says. God says love others as we love ourselves. How do we love ourselves best? By honoring God's word. Someone who has lost their, lost their marbles and they're giving into that rage that they're feeling, that emotion, that's feelings, that's just feelings, but they're scary to other people. Allowing them to behave this way is not loving them. So you simply say, I will absolutely positively have nothing to do with you until you calm down. You calm down. You ready to be civilized. You ready to sit down and talk this out in a way that works for both of us. Until then... You will not talk to me. I will have nothing to do with this conversation. An out-of-control person might get more out of control because they cannot believe that they're not getting their way. Their rage has worked on you. They cannot believe it. So guess what? You might need to get in your car, do some shopping, some retail therapy. What I'm saying is you might need to remove yourself because they're like, what? I'm used to controlling you, you know? Like, how is this not working? You know, but, but you set your boundary in a calm gentle. And I'll tell you, I have realized the key to this is calmness. Calmness. I rarely, rarely lose my temper anymore. It's very, very, very rare. I have prayed on this so much. And my husband, by the way, rarely loses his temper. I prayed on it so much. I'm just like, God, this is unholy. And please help me to stay calm. You know, it's interesting. An angry person is trying to control. They're trying to do other control. They're trying to control somebody else. 
There is no scripture in, anywhere in the Bible about other control. Every scripture is about self-control, which in this situation, it requires a lot on everybody's part. It requires, for the enabler, it takes a tremendous amount of self-control not to just cave so this can get over with, and then they feed the monster, and it gets bigger and badder next time. It, it takes a tremendous amount of self-control to not give in to that anger and to, re, to react to anger with anger. I was an enabler. I was a terrible enabler. But I also, I mean, we, we, like I said, we have all kinds of dynamics here. But, you know, you can be an enabler and not be afraid of the anger and fight back with anger. It doesn't matter. However you're going to do it, you have to learn this isn't a healthy boundary. I'm not participating. And, we, you know, when you allow anger to do that, you have to realize you are as much a part of the problem as they are. I'm sorry, if you allow that anger to control you, you're not just, listen, you are not just a victim. You are, you know, I, I know you like to think of him, I'm going to say, as a big bad wolf. You let it happen. You are in control of your own self. You let it. You didn't stand up to it. You didn't draw the line in the sand. You didn't say, I will not be participating in this. So the enabler has to make a decision. I will stop being a part of this problem. I take responsibility. I'm part of the problem. I am not just a victim. I am part of the problem. I will take responsibility for myself. It's so important. By the way, just in case Satan tries to tell you the lie, enabler, well, now you're trying to control him. You're not trying to control him. You're trying to take authority over your own self, and you're strongly suggesting that he takes authority over his own self. That's it. You're taking authority over you. You suggest he takes authority over himself. You're not trying to control him because that might be something that tries to get a little twisted or confused in your mind because you've been under this for so long. No, you're not. You're not trying to control him. You're controlling you. You're suggesting he controls himself. That's it. It's a boundary. You're just refusing to be part of the support system of this dysfunction anymore. You're a support system of dysfunction. So no more shrinking from anger. No more fearing it. And the, via, the, the boundary violator, um, the controlling person, has to learn that this, this is not going to be how they're going to get their way anymore. Not going to happen anymore. And like I already stated, when a boundary violator first starts seeing that an enabler is trying to draw those lines, I'm going to tell you it's going to get worse before it gets better because they're not going to believe you. They have found a way to get you to do what they want you to do for so long that they're like, well, I'll just up the ante then. Take this up 10 more notches. I'm talking about a, a typical marriage with these typical dynamics and, you know, two people who love each other but don't get it all right and have to figure out how to work it out, you're going to have to let that, that enabler is going to have to let that boundary violator understand that if they want to have a peaceful, happy home, which I'm sure they appreciate, if they want to continue to enjoy all the privileges of marriage that they enjoy, that they cannot interact with you on that level anymore. And that's that. You know, it's a little tough because I'm, I'm doing a lot of um, – talking to the enabler, but the enabler is the catalyst to change. As long as you're going to enable that, that person's never going to change. That person has no motivation to change. So if you want change, if the dynamic, whoever the enabler in the marriage is, if you want change in that relationship, you have to be the catalyst to it. That, that person is very comfortable with always getting their way. They're going to be like, I thought we were fine. So you, it's up to you. Again, okay, here's the list for the enabler who's listening. Take the locus of control back. 
stop complying to everyone's wishes, decide to take ownership of your own passivity, take responsibility of your own misery. It's your life. It's your choice. It's your misery. Change it if you don't like it. Make a decision to never again play the victim because you actually are not a victim. And I have another scripture for that, and that's Ephesians 6.19. And in that, the Apostle Paul asked for boldness. He asked, he said to the Ephesians, please pray that I have boldness. Listen, if the Apostle Paul had to pray for boldness, pray for boldness. You know, if you're weak in this area, ask God to help you. And then, and only then, the angry, uh, the angry boundary violator will have to learn that they will no longer get control of the relationship that way. They will no longer enjoy peace at home if that person is going to, if you're going to operate that way. If they continue in this manner, they will not enjoy the relationship that they've had because they're breaking it. And if you are not making a stand and stating it, then they don't think they're breaking anything. They think they're having a perfect life. So the catalyst is on the enabler to make the stand. And I'm not painting an easy road but I'm painting a worthwhile picture um, because it's worth it. Now, I want to talk about boundary violators who are not angry. They more operate off of pity, guilt. They tug at your heart. They, they, they manipulate through, they, they cross boundaries through how, you know, sad and pathetic it is. It all is. They develop the poor me syndrome and the enabler buys into it. I'm really going to specifically, I, I see this so much that I'm going to really paint a very specific picture in a marriage because I do a lot, a lot of marriage counseling in this particular arena. So, okay, the boundary violator in this scenario, because I just have seen it so much, this man, he's pretty irresponsible. He's pretty, um, doesn't take care of his own health, doesn't take care of stuff around the house, doesn't take care of, you know, he's a, he's a sweetheart. Okay, the guy's a sweetheart. He's not an angry person. He's a sweetheart. He's a very irresponsible personality. He's very irresponsible. A lot of chaos and disorganization around this person. It's like a whirlwind of stuff, just stuff. This man, you know, maybe he's like in his 40s still playing video games. You know, like it's this guy. I have nicknamed this. I've just done it. I've canceled this so much. I have a nickname for this guy. I call him, I call it the mommy because the, the wife becomes the mommy. And the man becomes the man-baby child. So we've got the man-baby child and the mommy. And I see a lot of marriages with the, with the mommy and the man-baby child. And I'm telling you, she's going to be breastfeeding him. If, if it, I mean, it is. It freaks me out. I see this so much. And I'm like, itch. You're the mommy, and you're the man-baby child, and this is icky. And by the way, nobody's ever happy in this. this is, the, the, now, the man-baby child is much happier for much longer because he gets babied. And I think, I don't even know. I'm like, do you guys have, like, a stash of diapers somewhere? Like, this is a mess. So anyway, it's terrible. And there's, and there's a lot of man-baby childs out there. They're just big babies. They're big, sweet, lovable babies. And everybody around them loves them because they're big, sweet teddy bears. And the wife is like, I am doing everything. And he is wearing me out. And he's a big man, baby child. It really leads to a lot of resentment. And it is super dysfunctional. Now, this is a sweeter relationship. Okay? It's sweeter. It's a serious breakdown. Something about this, this is strange as I've witnessed it over the years. Something about this really feeds the enabler. They really like babying 
the baby daddy. Like, you know, they really like doing, they like babying them. They, they're taking care, they're, they're caregivers, okay? So they're caregivers. They like, this is the man they love. They like taking care of that big old teddy bear of a boy. They don't like it, you know? But, um, uh, and, and they won't relinquish, they're not going to let him fail. They won't let him fail. You know, we talk about the sower and the seed and the, you know, like we sow what we reap. They're not going to let their man baby child fail. They're not going to let him sow and reap. They're not going to. They're going to always pick up the pieces. They're going to go around after that little man baby child and pick up like a, you know, they're going to they're gonna have the crackers and the sippy cup and the, they're going to be, you know, it's, but it's, I'm telling you, it's like that bad. It really is. You cannot have a parent-child relationship in a marriage. Okay, if, as soon as you become the mommy and he's the baby child, you are sick, by the way. You're sick. You're sick. Um, the marriage is sick. Uh, marriage has to be peer-to-peer. You are peers. You are two adults. Babies don't get married for a reason because it's sick. You, you know, I mean, obviously there are extreme situations, and again, I'm not talking about extreme situations, but, you know, sometimes there are situations where there's a disability or something like that, and, you know, so roles change. But I'm not talking about any type of extreme situation. I'm talking about regular marriages here. The, the enabler truly believes that they are chicken little, and if they don't do absolutely everything for him, the sky is going to fall. Do you guys remember the parable of the little Dutch boy? He put his finger in the dam. And he had to hold, the, keep his finger in the dam. It's a child, it's a riddle from childhood. You have to keep your finger in the dam and he keeps his finger in the dam and he saves the whole village because the dam would have broken and he keeps his finger in the dam. That's what the enabler does in this marriage. They really believe that if they don't enable everything, they really believe that the sky's going to fall, that it's up to them to do everything to take care of man, baby, child, because he just can't do it. And so the sky will fall. They're exhausted because it's not natural. And, and men are supposed to be men. They're supposed to be grown-up men. And women are not supposed to be mommies to their men. They're supposed to be grown-up wives. And everybody's supposed to be a grown-up, and they're supposed to be sowing and reaping. And you've removed from this man, and again, I'm just using men and women because I'm sure it works both ways. But the counseling that I have mostly done, it is the woman who's the mommy. So you've removed from them the ability to be a grown-up man. And it just doesn't work. And I can tell you the enabler is the first one to become unhappy because they're exhausted and they feel taken advantage of. But it's really, like I said, very much their fault in so many ways. But I'm going to tell you, this is what I've witnessed about the man, baby child. He is also very unhappy. And I'm going to tell you what he feels. He feels disapproved of all the time. He just feels like he can't measure up because she feels that way because she's doing what a man should be doing. You know, he, she's taking over his position. He feels degraded. He t- feels talked down to. He feels mothered, and he feels nagged. I've talked to a lot of these men. They all feel the same way. So they're not happy. They feel put down. They feel underfoot. They feel, you know, I said, this is not a happy thing for them either. This is, it just doesn't work. It's not working for anybody. The, not, the law of enabling is the continual help that the enabler gives becomes the source of destruction. That continual help is now the source of destruction in that person's life. That is enabling. We've talked a lot about enabling through all of these things. But you have now become the source of that person's destruction. That person feels bad. I know you're trying to help, but you're not helping. You're the source of the destruction. You know, uh, uh, we were talking, this personality, there's a lot of addicts. 
involved with this type of personality. You know, any addict can tell you that the best way in the whole world for them to stay addicted is to surround themselves with enablers. That's the be- the, every addict has to have enablers. They have to. Addicts can't stay an addict if there's nobody there to enable them because their whole entire life falls apart and there's nothing there. That helps prop them up. Uh, it's very difficult to continue in their addiction without those enablers. It, it just makes it much harder for them to continue on in their destructive behavior. So um, what does Ephesians 5.11 say? And I put that on there. It says, have nothing to do with the fruitless seeds of darkness. Enabler, God says, have nothing to do with it. Walk away from it. And I'm not talking about walking away from your, from your marriage, but stop falling around your man, baby child with, you know, picking up the toys after him. Stop. Stop doing it. Say, man, baby child, you need to pick up your own toys. Mama is not your mama anymore. You moved up with your mama 20 years ago. Stop babying a full-fledged adult. It's gross. That's not a baby. That's a full-fledged man. So you have to stop doing it. The Bible says have nothing to do with it. And when you stop enabling, then guess what? You can get healthier. And guess what? They can get healthier. And like I said, it really is incumbent upon the enabler. It might feel very unfair to the enabler right now because they're really used to being the victim. And now they're being called to step it up and be the person to, to be proactive and do something about it. But it isn't coming upon you. You want change. That person is usually not going to change because they're very comfortable with the scenario. You know, the truth is protecting boundaries gives hope for the relationship. That's how you develop hope. That, that, that gives you a hope for change. It gives you hope for something better. It gives you some hope for something healthier. At some point, you both have to stop coasting along in this dysfunctional thing. At some point, this, this is, it breaks down. It doesn't last. You can't last forever in, in a boundaryless dysfunctional marriage. I'm going to go on to the third person, and I don't give as much time to the third and fourth person um, because there's, there is a lot of crossover, but also there's so much of that in so many marriages. But we have another person. Um, I call this person the non-responsive. This is a person who can't say yes to emotions. They are emotionally checked out. They don't respond emotionally. They are very apathetic. They actually set boundaries against giving and receiving love. They literally set boundaries against giving and receiving love. And it's a way to control others. They're just, they're not responsive to others' needs at all. They're emotionally checked out. Proverbs 3.27 says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to act. It's not okay to be emotionally checked out. It's not okay to be a non-responsive. It's very destructive. So I see this with women towards men when they just, they're, they're not going to give him any praise. They're not going to, they're not, they're, they're very critical and they're going to point out everything that's wrong and they're not going to say anything that's good. They're not interested in his job. They're not interested in his interests. They are emotionally checked out. I, I see this with men. They're, they don't ever tell her she's pretty. She basically feels invisible. He doesn't involve himself in the children. He doesn't involve himself in the household. He doesn't involve himself. He's checked out emotionally. And if you are, a, if you chose to put yourself in a marriage and chose to put yourself into a family, you do not get the option of being a passive observer. This person wants to be able to be a passive observer in their own family. You don't get that option. You chose to have a family. You chose to be in a marriage. You don't get to just be sit on the sidelines and, you know, be, be the armchair quarterback and criticize everybody that's doing everything. You know, they often think if I don't get involved, I can't be held responsible. That's like their motto. If I don't say anything, if I, then nobody will be mad at me, and I don't have to be held responsible for this. And if I ignore it, it will just go away. Their way of dealing with the problem is just ignore it. Hopefully it goes away. 
And then the, uh, the fourth person is the martyr. They cannot receive the help. This person is like, I'm okay. I don't need any help. I don't want to bother anybody. If this person was like in the, in the, I've used a lot of the Good Samaritan, the parable a lot of the Good Samaritan, that person would have been the person that was beat up on the ground and the guy would have come along to help him and they'd have been like, don't bother. I don't want to be a bother. I'm fine. I'm fine. Just keep going. I'm the martyr. So there's a man and there's a flood coming and the officials come to this guy's house and they're saying, everybody needs to leave. You got to leave. And he's just like, Oh, I don't need to leave. Um, I'm a faithful Christian. God's going to send a miracle and save me. So then he's standing on his porch and the water's rising. He sees the water coming up to his steps. And a guy comes by in a canoe. And he's like, get in my canoe. You know, the water's coming. And he's like, oh, no. Go, go help somebody else. I'm going to be fine. God's going to save me. I'm, I'm totally fine. And God's going to give me a miracle. So the water starts rising, 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 comes through his windows. He has to go up to the second floor. There's, you know, water in his lower level. So a, a police motorboat comes across the window on the second floor. Sir, sir, get in, get in. The water's coming. He's like, no, 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 go save somebody else. Go save, I'm fine, I'm fine. I, God's going to save me. God's, gonna, God's got me taken care of. It's just go, go help someone else. So the water keeps coming, keeps coming. He's up on the roof. A helicopter comes. They drop the rope down. They're like, Sir, get on the ladder. The waters are coming. He's like, go help someone else. God's going to save me. And then, of course, he gets washed away and drowned. So he stands before God, and he's like, Lord, I trusted you. You didn't save me. And the Lord says, son, I sent you a warning. I sent you a canoe. I sent you a motorboat, and I sent you a helicopter. What else did you want from me? And that is the martyr. That is the martyr. Okay. Okay, so here is my joke. What happens when the non-responsive and the martyr meet in a bar? They get married. So, <laughs> okay, so let's talk about how this dysfunction works because I see this a lot in marriage. The non-responsive is apathetic, and the martyr says a thousand times, oh, it's okay. Don't worry about me. I'm fine. I'll handle everything. I'll handle the children. I'll handle the house. I'll handle getting the car tags on the car. I'll handle paying the bills. I'll handle I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Don't worry about me. And he's like, I'm not worried about you. I'm watching my TV. Get out of the way. I got to click, you know, remote, blah, blah, blah. You know, there is really great pain in being ignored, though. Being invisible, being ignored, if you've ever been in that relationship, it's excruciating to being unseen, and that unemotionally checked out person. And I tell you, there's something about the TV in that person. They could be golfers. I mean, sometimes there's other things. But, you know, it's like think about what they forfeit in their families because they're so zoned in on the television or a golf game or sports or something, and they, they forfeit their families. They forfeit their – and the little martyrs panning after them, like baking them cookies for the golf tournament, and they're, you know, and, then, and they're going to just – they're checked out. They're, they're ignored. They're ignored. The martyr is a human being, and that hurt. And that hurt is growing and growing and growing and growing and growing until they can't even breathe anymore. Leviticus 19.17 has something to say about it. It says, don't nurse hatred in your heart for any of your relatives. Confront people directly so you will not be held guilty for their sin. Little, little Miss Martyr, you, you're, it's not your job to take care of everything. To do it. Confront them. Deal with it. He needs to deal with it. Again, this is not going to go easy. You've probably established a dynamic, so it's very hard to break them. 
but you got, it's not the way God intended it to be. It's not how God tells you to do it. When we do, God, there's no scripture that says be the martyr and let him watch TV 14 hours a day. You know, like this is, and again, I'm using him and her, but it's what I see a lot of, and I'm also speaking to women. I know it can work both ways. You know, there's no scripture about being the martyr. There's no scripture about not standing up and saying, you ignore me, you ignore the kids, you ignore the family, you forfeit all of us for 20 hours of television. Like, get involved, wake up. What I have witnessed is the martyr eventually snaps and does something super duper uncharacteristic. Really, really uncharacteristic for their personality. And then the non-responsive, because he never shows any emotion and he stays like this all the time, he gets to look like the good guy. Because he's calm, he's even, he's all this, and she's gone off and, you know, this is not like her, and she's, he gets, he comes, like, she's crazy and out of control, right? Because she's doing anything to get, because it's so, it hurts a person's emotions so deeply to be invisible and ignored, that they start to then act out to try to get, the, the martyr eventually will act out to anything to get his attention, Right? And then that, that non-responsive person is like as steady as a rock. And so he looks like poor, poor Mr. Non-responsive and that crazy, crazy martyr. And guess what? Then eventually she's like, man, I tried to make a stand. It just didn't work. So she goes right back to martyrdom. And he goes right back to being non-responsive. And it's a horrible, painful, destructive boundary problem. And there's a weird um, dynamic that I've witnessed. That non-responsive person, like they would never admit it. Like they'd be like, they would deny it to their dang dying breath, but I can tell you I've seen too much of it. The destructive pattern that it creates, they almost like it. That crazy that can come out, it's sweet little old Miss Little Martyr. They like that sense of power because it makes them feel like they're in the power. Like you, you try to make a stand I'm still in power. I mean, it's sad. Most people wouldn't meaning, meaningfully do that, but, it's, but it, it is what happens. So we've got to really be aware of these patterns in our marriages and these things that can happen. And, and again, how do we prevent it? We have boundaries that we stand by in a kind, decent, level-handed way. And we've got to really be aware of thinking that our boundary problems are not within our own power to resolve. Uh, we cannot be the victims of our lives. It's so unhealthy for everybody. So here I wrote down the law of responsibility because it's our job to enforce our boundaries. It's our job to respect other people's boundaries. So the law of responsibility, I am responsible for myself. You are responsible for yourself. Others can't grow for us. We can't be responsible for someone else's growth. We have to be responsible for our own growth. Uh, in marriage, we have to learn, I am responsible for me. You are responsible for you. We have to allow the law of sowing and reaping. Even though we're one, there are boundary lines in a marriage. Okay, so things I am responsible for. I am responsible for my feelings. You know, we like to say, you made me feel this way. What we mean is, you know, that really hurt me, and that's Okay. You don't give that away, that power for someone else to make you anything. That's not the way God set it up. We also have to pick a, a, an age of responsibility. One thing I hear a lot of when I do counseling with couples, it's so much about what their parents did and their parents did and their parents did. You know, pick an age where you're responsible for you and it's no longer about your parents' dysfunction. Like, pick that age and then stick with it. I mean, I, I'm like always amazed. I'm like, I'm not doing marriage counseling with your mommy and daddy. 
You're a full-fledged grown-up. We're talking to you. Make your choices. Now it's about you. You choose what you're going to let your life look like. So we have to take personal responsibility, and we really have to be responsible for the things I, I do, uh, the people I hurt. I am responsible for my words, my behavior, the people I allow in my life. I am responsible. You know, I am not a victim to the people I allow in my life. Boundary-setting tips. I have a few. Tip one, really important to set boundaries out of evaluating a situation, being very, very prayerful, being very, very thoughtful, uh, not doing out of the heat of some big argument. You've got to set your boundary of, of saying, God, what is this supposed to look like? Hopefully you have a spouse that you can sit down, be prayerful, ask God to show you where the line should look. If you don't have a spouse that you can do that, you know, if your spouse is kind of unreasonable or stuck in one of these patterns, be really prayerful. Ask God. But then once you come up with a boundary, stick to it. Do not buy. When you know what that boundary is supposed to look like, that's your line. And there's no moving the line. There's no not sticking to it. There's a law of nothing but bad choices. And basically what I mean by that is you just feel like all you have are bad choices. So I just don't do anything. Staying paralyzed in your current situation, it's just allowing that violation to continue and continue and continue and continue. The worst choice you can make is to keep it as it is. And that's what so often we want to do. You're damaging yourself. You're damaging them. You're trapping yourself. And you're supporting their, their continual brokenness. You know, the law of bad choices to just say, keep it as it is, is a terrible option. Eventually, if you do the hard right thing, and I know because I've lived it and I've done it, eventually something's going to give. And so eventually I started changing. You know, I I said to Dave when we, we came back to our marriage, I said, we both matter. I always was like, only you matter. I came to the realization there's no scripture anywhere that says that everybody matters. Reagan can tell you, I say that to her. I'm like, you matter, mommy matters, daddy matters, everybody matters. Nobody is allowed to not matter. That's unhealthy. You have to be able to stand your ground in this stuff. Um, Tip number two, this setting this boundary is not about feeding your big, fat, overinflated me. This is, you know, so many people start to set boundaries and it really becomes about this big, selfish, I deserve better uh, you can't treat me like this. It's, it's very self-centered that God's not going to bless that. That's, we are considered the me generation, and the me generation, the fruit of the me generation is um, higher divorce rate than ever in history, greater depression. People can't have good relationships. You know, this is not about feeding the big, flat, fat, overinflated, I deserve better me. You know, this is about saying I want this to be healthy and good for both of us. And this just isn't working for me. And I want this marriage to be good. And I want it to work with you. And I want it to be good for you, too. I want it to be good for both of us. So saying, how do we make this work for both of us? Working out the boundaries so that you're not feeling, like, neglected. You know, like I'm thinking about the guy who's the, um, you know, the, the person that doesn't invest emotionally. You know, you like television? Okay, well, I'll watch you know, a movie with you for a couple hours, but then I want you to go on a walk with me. You know, like working it out. Saying, I want it to work for both of us. I'm not here to dictate how this is going to look. This isn't just about me, but what we have isn't healthy. So how do we work this out so that everybody matters? Number three is no scorekeeping. This is super, super unhealthy, and boundaries can become about keeping score. Um, the Bible says that the Lord loves a cheerful giver, 
We should give to other people, our husbands, our children, or anybody, because we enjoy giving, because we want to bring joy to them, because uh, we, we do not give to our spouses because somebody's keeping score and we're, we're repaying imaginary debt. I did this for you. You need to do this for me. You know, this tit for tat thing. You know, this is not, I took out the trash last time. You need to take out the trash this time. That is not what boundaries are. Just take out the dang trash. But, you know, just don't be petty. This is not about pettiness. You know, that's a way that the enemy would twist this. The scripture says, Proverbs 23, 6 8, do not eat with people who are stingy. Don't desire their delicacies. They're always thinking about how much it costs. Eat and drink, they say to your face, but they don't mean it. You will throw up what little you've eaten and your compliments will be wasted. What is that saying? It's saying a stingy person, like don't even have anything to do with them, but if you're in a marriage, you don't want to be a stingy person who's counting the cost of, I did this, now you need to do this, now you need to do this, and you need to do this. I can't stand that. I can't stand hearing about it. I can't stand witnessing it. It's painful. I can't even imagine how it makes God feel. Give. Be a giver. Um, and if you give, give freely and don't keep score. And if you feel like it's not a healthy thing for you to give, you're not under compulsion to give. But if you do give, you're not keeping score about it. It's your choice. In conclusion, we're here. Boundaries are to preserve love. We make a stand for boundaries when someone is crossing a line in our lives and breaking God's word. That is when we make a stand for boundaries. It's loving them as we love ourselves, which is honoring God's word in our marriage, things that are not healthy or godly. You know, this is, again, not about pettiness, not about selfishness, not about the overinflated me. It would be a horrible abuse of this concept. This is about breaking unhealthy patterns. You know, we just have to be able to say if something's unhealthy, I cannot participate in this because this is not godly. This is not healthy. I can't be party to it. I love you. I, you know, I want to support you. I want to do this together. But this dynamic in our relationship is very unhealthy and I can't participate. If I participate, I'm furthering it. I'm enabling it. I'm being a party to the problem. Um, and I care about this relationship. I care about you too much to be part of the problem anymore. I'm not going to prop up the problem. I'm not going to keep it going. And we have to realize that we are participants, you know, whether we're a violator or we're an enabler or we're, you know, whatever, or the martyr or the non-responsive, we are participating. Anywhere where there's a boundary breakdown, we are participating. We are choosing how we're going to respond to that. So we just want to respond in love. We want to be firm, but we need to know what those, you have to take it before God and say, what's this supposed to look like, Lord? What's honoring to you? And then not hold bitterness in our heart. You know, there's no, this isn't bitterness. This isn't selfishness. This is just what's healthy. The final scripture is get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, which by the way, healthy boundaries respected by everybody does get rid of those things, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Boundaries in marriage, they're about healing relationships and resetting structures so that the marriage can last. And so the marriage doesn't have walls. So you can tear down the walls and feel safe. Lord God, I just pray over every marriage, Father God. I pray in the name of Jesus, Father God, that you just teach us how to not be in either ditch, Father God. Lord, we don't, we don't want to be selfish. Lord, you don't want us to be selfish, God. This is not about selfishness. God, this is about what is healthy, what is right, what is healing, what brings wholeness, what brings unity, what strengthens and edifies a marriage and a family. Father, give us wisdom. We know all wisdom comes from you. 
And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just give us wisdom. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.